and chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and reading from verse 11 through verse 18. The letter to the Hebrews, chapter 10, and verses 11 through 18. Again, please give your careful attention as we read God's Word. Hebrews 10 at verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of our God abides forever. Some passages in the Bible serve as conclusions, and particularly conclusions to the great doctrinal portions of Scripture. In our text this morning, Hebrews 10, 11 through 18, we have an example of such a passage, a passage that serves as a great conclusion to the great doctrinal portion of the letter prior to it. And so, as we come to these verses, again, returning to the book of Hebrews, we find here a great conclusion to the previous doctrinal section, showing that whilst the old covenant offered no real solution for sin, Christ's priestly work in the new covenant, successfully and sufficiently solves this great problem of all mankind. As the Lord would have it in His providence, we are going to spend two weeks this Sunday and next Sunday morning on this passage, and so we will use that summary, and so if you're writing it down or you're keeping it from your bulletin, then hang on to it. It will be useful to you next Lord's Day morning. But as we begin the exposition of this passage, we are going to think about three things this morning. First of all, a great 
statement. Secondly, a great transition. And then thirdly, a great reality. So, a great statement, a great transition, and a great reality. We begin, first of all, with a great statement in verses 11 through 14. The central doctrinal section of Hebrews began back in chapter 7. That may seem a long, long time when we were looking at that passage, but it begins back in chapter 7, the central doctrinal section of Hebrews. In that place, in that extended exposition, the author compared Christ and His priestly work to the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the whole sacrificial system of the Old Covenant. There he showed that Christ is superior as priest, both to Aaron and all of Aaron's successors. And he showed that Christ is better when compared to Melchizedek. And then as we came to chapter 8, the author showed that Christ's covenant is better than the old covenant in Moses. And then in chapter 9, he showed that Christ's blood is better, superior, than that of the sacrifices of all the blood of bulls and goats offered under the old covenant. And so now in concluding that great exposition, that great argument that he has made, the author here again emphasizes, whilst the old covenant offered no real solution for sin, Christ's priestly work in the new covenant sufficiently and successfully solves the great problem of all mankind alienated from God by sin. And so we come to Hebrews 10 and verse 11 where he says, every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, these verses here, verses 11 through 14, deliver and give to us wonderful, glorious good news. One commentator puts it like this. He says, quote, all of redemptive history, from the time when God clothed guilty Adam and Eve with the skins of the slain animal at the gate of the garden, to Abraham, receiving a ram to be slain in the place of his son Isaac upon Mount Moriah. To the Israelites, 
in the time of Moses, spreading the Lamb's blood on their doorposts, lest the angel of death should come in and destroy their firstborn. Two, generation after generation of Israel, with the priests slaying thousands and millions of lambs and goats and bulls. Sacrifices, the author of Hebrews insists, could never have atoned for one human sin. Commentator goes on, quote, All of that history, from Adam all the way through to the Israelites under Moses, all of that history had craned its neck to hear words such as these, Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. They had waited with bated breath, had cried with bitter tears, where is the Lamb? Where is the true sacrifice? Where is the real atonement that will not merely place an ill-fitting lid on the, boil, on the boiling cauldron of sin, but actually exhaust the fury of God's wrath and justice against it? End quote. Now, it's lengthy. I understand that. But those words were so wonderful. I thought we should all hear them just quoted. All down through the Old Covenant, they had received the promise that one would come to be the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist announces Him, who will take away the sins of the world. And so throughout all of the Old Testament days, there is that echoing anticipation. Where is this one? Where is the Lamb? Where is the two sacrifices? And that wonderful picture and illustration that the commentator uses, that one that would not just put a lid temporarily on a boiling pot. You know what happens when you do that, right? It may temporarily suppress whatever's inside, be it water or something else, from boiling over. But you know in the end, if the heat is still underneath and you don't resolve what's inside, then guess what? You've got an explosion of some measure, don't you? Lid comes off, contents come out, and so forth. That's the picture here. When Christ would come, the real atonement in His own blood would not just be like some ill-fitting lid on a boiling cauldron, He says, but would actually exhaust the fury of God's wrath and justice against the sins of men, women, boys, and girls. Well, now, as we've seen many times, the primary purpose that motivated this letter was to warn Christians not to fall back into the ways of the Old Covenant now that the New had come. Now, in their circumstances, they were facing difficulties, experiencing persecution, either from the Jewish community or the Roman authorities, or perhaps both. And there was great pressure for these Christians to make denial of Christ in favor of some form of Judaism that was more acceptable, more acceptable to the Jews, more acceptable to the Roman authorities. 
It was a great temptation to them. But these verses here, 11 through 14, sum up the whole of the author's rejection of doing such a thing. How can you return to such a religion, he says, to a priesthood, to a covenant that despite all the labor, all the activity, all, as we might put it, the blood, sweat, and tears, and yet, verse 11, can never take away sins. Why would you do that, he says? It's an unimaginable folly. Despite the worldly pain of persecution for the sake of Christ, it's folly to go back from forgiveness and peace and real access to God through the work of Christ back to the old covenants that look forward to these realities, but they were not present in that accomplished way. Why would you go back, he says, by His one and finished sacrifice? Christ has put away sin and made holy all who fold fast to Him by faith. What would you compare with that, Christian, is what the author is saying, whether he's saying it to first century Christians or he's saying it to us this morning. What would you have instead of that? No earthly prize is of such value. No worldly sacrifice is too great for such gain. And yet, as was a reality in the first century, it is still a reality today. There is always that temptation to turn back to something that's more acceptable to this world. Yes, religion of some sorts but something more palatable that would not um, cause so much opposition from an ungodly world. Here we find again the overwhelming argument of the author to the Hebrews, both for first-century Christians and 21st-century Christians, and anyone in between. Those whom one commentator calls in whatever age, fretfully wondering if faithfulness to Christ is worth the cost, end quote. Maybe that's you this morning. Now we've set the historic contest. Let's come to where we are by way of practical application in the 21st century. Are you such a one this morning? who may be, in the words of that commentator, fretfully wondering if faithfulness to Christ is worth the cost. You see, what the writer um, speaks of here speaks just as powerfully to people today as it did to those who were his original hearers. As they consider the claims of Christ and the cost of discipleship, and Jesus made that very clear. He did not promise Christians then. He does not promise Christians now that the walk of faith in this world be, will be easy, will be, as we call it, a bed of roses, will be a life of ease. He does not promise this. 
In fact, he warns of the very opposite. Count the cost. You're going to have to carry a cross. And that was not easy. As one of the commentator puts it, he says, quote, Whether we are on the doorstep of faith, counting the cost, or even on the exit ramp of unbelief, he says, concerning those who may have professed the faith, but it seems just too hard to them. He goes on to say, what we find in these verses is equally significant. What do we find here then? What do these verses tell us? They tell us that in Christ we have not mere religion, but salvation, full and free. We do not have just ritual and tradition, but spiritual power and reality. We do not just have warm sentiments, nor even just moral self-help, but the reality of the forgiveness of sins by the work of Christ and power to live then a holy life to the glory of God. Here then is this great statement, this great conclusion. Jesus Christ has done upon the cross what no priest of Israel before could ever have done and what no worldly religion today can do, whatever that may be. He has done it. Therefore, both for the first century Christian in danger of abandoning Christ, and even for someone today, maybe even in this congregation this morning. As one of the other commentators puts it so much in in our language, he says, for ones who may be a fence-sitting doubter, in danger of passing by the one and true salvation, these verses, sound the gospel trumpet. They clang the gospel bell. There is a true sacrifice that supplies the forgiveness of sins. And there is a priest reigning in heaven to make sinners like you and me holy in the sight of God. Isn't that glorious good news? What else could you want to hear this morning? What does the law of God tell you? It tells you you are a guilty sinner, whoever you are. It tells me that. It tells you that. There is no hope in the law for guilty sinners with regard to acceptance with God. Don't think you are going to come before the Lord at the end of time and think, well, you know what? The the good outweighs the bad. It will condemn you. Your bad works and the best of your good works will condemn you. There is no hope for you in the law for acceptance with God as sinner. So where will you find hope this morning? When you put your head on the pillow at night 
And if you were not to wake up again in this world, where is your hope? How do you sleep at night if you cannot answer that question with any certainty? For the Christian, they can. They can put their head down on the pillow each and every night. And if this be the last day the Lord has appointed for them, there is nothing to fear. It is but then the door of transition to the glories of heaven above, first of all for the soul and then for body and soul at the great consummation. Why? What makes the difference? This very thing, that they have trusted in the one that God has sent, the one who shed His own blood, who can say there is forgiveness of sins for the like of you. Isn't that glorious good news? To be heralded, trumpeted, clanged as a great gospel bell to sound and reverberate. Jesus saves. Would you not know that great peace this morning? And come to one who can save to the uttermost those who come in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. Well, then that brings us in the second place to a great transition. Again in verse 14. Now, this whole section, Hebrews 11 through 18, is not only a conclusion, but it's also a transitional passage. It sets the stage for the applications, as we often call them, that follow in the rest of the epistle. So, as you find in many of the letters of the New Testament, the first sections primarily, though not exclusively, are what we call the indicatives, what God has done. And then typically the um, latter parts um, are what we call the imperatives, though not exclusively. So then, what is to be done in the light of the indicatives? Well, here we have such transition again this morning in the book of Hebrews. Now, here it signals that through the use of a phrase, through an expression, that we have encountered numerous times as we've gone through the book of Hebrews, it is the phrase, made perfect, made perfect. Here the phrase occurs for the seventh out of nine times in the whole book. Verse 14, by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, in the early chapters of the book, this phrase, made perfect or perfected, mainly referred to Jesus Christ Himself. If you can remember this far back, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, it was fitting that He, and then we pick up the verse a little later, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, as you may recall at that time when we were in that passage, the point of the author there is not to say that Jesus was ever less than perfect in His person, but rather what he's saying is that the experiences of His life and death in His humanity perfected Him. That is, prepared Him or qualified Him 
for his office and work as Redeemer. To substantiate that, we turn a few pages forward to Hebrews chapter 5. And when we looked at verses 8 to 9, we find that they cast light on Hebrews 2.10, where the author says, although he was a son, referring to Jesus, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, these statements regarding the perfecting or the making perfect of Jesus Christ present the main doctrinal point of Hebrews, namely, His perfect and unique fitness to put away sin, both as a perfect sacrifice and as a perfect priest. Now, once that point has been established, then the author then uses this same phrase, perfected or made perfect, in reference to what God intends for believers, for those who are in Christ. And so, the last four uses of this expression in the book of Hebrews, beginning here in chapter 10, all refer to believers, not to Jesus Christ Himself, but to those who are in Christ, to believers. Hebrews 10 verse 1. There the author complains that the old covenant can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Hebrews 10 verse 14, the verse we're looking at right now, says that Christ by His one sacrifice has perfected or made perfect for all time those who are being sanctified. When we get to Hebrews chapter 11, Lord willing, verses 39 and 40, and all these, referring to that great list of those who walk by faith, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect or perfected. And then, Lord willing, when we come to chapter 12 and that great section, verses 18 through 24, believers there in heaven are described as what? The spirits of the righteous made perfect. So, this is what unfolds in the flow of the book, in the flow of Hebrews. Christ was made perfect in the role of Savior and high priest for the church, for His people, in order to sit at God's right hand. That, if you like, is the first half. Why? Why was all of that the plan and purpose of the eternal God? So that we, the church, true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we too would be made perfect, made perfect in Him, for our role as worshiping priests, that kingdom of priests of which Peter speaks, worshiping Him, the consummate kingdom of the glory of heaven above, before the very throne of God. That is the second half. You see, the 
great structure of what the author of Hebrews is doing here. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? And so here we have that great transition, having set out the making perfect of the one who was sent so that he was properly fitted for his role as priest and sacrifice. Now the author is going to transition to that second half, the making perfect of all those who are united to him by faith, so that they may be properly fitted priests themselves, worshiping priests in the kingdom of God. Well, then that brings us in the third place and finally for this morning, though not in conclusion of the whole exposition yet, but for this morning, thirdly, the great reality, a great reality, verses 15 through 17. There's a lot to consider in these verses, and that's why I made the decision to split it up into two sermons. And so, for this morning, we're just going to set the scene um, for these verses. Uh, if you like analogy, this is like having the appetizer, but you're going to have to wait, Lord willing, till next Sunday morning for the main course. We're just going to set the scene here and whet our appetites. So, these verses here, 15 through 17, look back on the new covenant of which the author has spoken, Hebrews chapter 8, to highlight both the external and the internal, the objective and subjective aspects of God's great and our salvation. Notice what he says. Hebrews 10 verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. What do we see here? God has forgiven our sins if we are united to Christ by faith. Verse 17. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more, says God. That relates to what we call our justification, our right standing before God. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. It is the external and objective aspect of our, of our salvation, the right standing that we have now to stand in the presence of the Holy God. But notice what he says prior to that. He has put His law in the hearts and written it upon the minds of believers. Verse 16, this is what we call our sanctification. It's internal, what we might call subjective. How do we put these two things together in summary fashion? Remembering this is but the appetizer. There's so much more to say about this, but just by way of hors d'oeuvres this morning. We can say, putting these two things together, salvation is a definite act of God whereby He forgives our sins forever and accepts us in Christ. But it is also a lifelong process of deliverance from the power of sin and the coming of the new life in the believer. 
that as Paul says in Ephesians 4.24, that new life that is after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And to understand the greatness of God's salvation for sinners like you and me, we need to make sure we have both of those things in proper balance and proper tension. And the great problem often in the Christian church is the emphasis of one at the expense of the other. Often criticism is made. So much is made of justification that sanctification disappears. And then what happens? People say, well, we need to emphasize sanctification. And they do so, so much, the justification seems to disappear. It's both and, brethren, not either or. You're going to get to say, well, you know, I like justification more than sanctification, so that's going to be my bag as a Christian, and I don't really care about the other one. And you don't get to stand on the other side and say, well, you know, my great kind of interest in the Christian life is sanctification, and justification, okay, I'm glad I've got it. It ticks the box for me. But, you know, the big deal is this. Brethren, it's both and. That's what he says here. When we get that, there's nothing more thrilling for the Christian than those things, both realities, kept in proper distinction and tension, not confused, one is the other, but not so separated that there's a risk of losing one at the expense of the other. When you see that, there's nothing more thrilling, Christian, this morning than this, than what God has done for us. What has He done? He has made us perfect, and He will make us perfect after the likeness of God in true holiness. What does that mean as we look at it in terms of the fulfillment of that promise in consummate reality? When Christ comes on that last day and we will be made perfect, perfected in body and soul, unchangeably so forever and ever, what will that mean? Let me just line it out a little bit for us, and Lord willing, we'll think about this in greater detail next Lord's Day morning. It means we will become perfect as the creature God intended us to be, as His image-bearer. We will become perfect in bearing that image in conformity to Christ Himself. Just think about that. As you battle with sin, Christian, day by day, and as you seek to walk in holiness, make progress in holiness, in word, thought, and deed, we're also conscious of failure, aren't we? Of weakness. Start the day, Lord, help me to be holy. And if we've got any seriousness about this, we're still conscious of probably the failings of the day before, the week before, and so forth. Even though properly and rightly we have confessed those sins, we have received the Lord's forgiveness, but, but we know where the battle is, right? For some of us it may be more in word than thought and deed. For some of us it may be deed more than word and thought. And for some, it may be in thought more than word and deed, or any other combination. But whatever it is, it's still a battle, right? None of us are yet 
fully made perfect in our sanctification, though we are perfect in terms of our justification. But here's the great reality of what this promises. You'll be perfect, Christian, in thought, word, and deed. Nothing of which to repent in heaven. Won't that be a wonderful thing? Won't it be a wonderful thing? One commentator says, this is staggering, this prospect, so foreign to our actual present experience where we continue to sin day by day and graciously receive the Lord's forgiveness. But won't it be a wonderful thing when we are made perfect, both in justification and sanctification, at that last great day? And that's all because of what Christ has done for us. Though we're yet still in the battle, the putting off and the putting on, putting off the old man, putting on the new man in Christ progressively. It's hard work, isn't it? God has to sustain us, otherwise we would never be able to do it. Yet because of what Christ has done for us, Christian, this is... My reality and your reality, that is what we have been made new creatures for in Christ Jesus. Even though it is not yet fully ours, it will certainly will be. That's the great reality here. Wonderfully, isn't it? We will be made perfect in glory the glory that comes from Him and reflects back to Him, to the great praise of His name, Paul says. Now, what's the great application of this? Well, the very thought of this should create in us, therefore, this great appetite. We've been using the analogy of food and appetizers and so on. Now, we're just thinking about appetites. This should create in us a great appetite for practical holiness, brethren. And indeed, with a dread and loathing of sin, never thinking of sin lightly, though we may yet fall, and we will, but never, hmm, so what? doesn't really matter. That's not what is before us here through these words. What these words should grow in us is appetite for holiness and dread and loathing for sin. You know how it can often be... Um, part of the diagnosis of something that is significantly wrong with us when there's lack of appetite, right? Most of us under normal circumstances get hungry, and that's the way the Lord made us, so that we would eat. And so, um, we're getting to the noon hour. You might be even physically feeling that right now, right? Some sense of hunger, waiting for lunch to come. Um, under normal circumstances, that's a good thing. And uh, if circumstances... Uh, you've got to kind of skip lunch. It's not a good thing to do. Don't think I'm commending skipping lunch, but many years over circumstances I've done that. And so if it gets to dinner time, you're really hungry, right? That's the picture here. As we understand the great reality of what God has done, as He says, I will remember your sins and your lawless deeds no more. And then as He says, I've written my law on your heart, 
written it on your mind, then that should promote that great desire, that great hunger for holiness and that great dread of loathing of sin. Well, brethren, if we have grasped only part of that truth, as all of us have only done so, to whatever extent, but if we have laid hold of but a portion of the reality here, as one commentator says, if we have laid hold of a fragment of our true identity in Christ, then we will no longer live as we have done previously. We will no longer live as we have done previously. But here again, we have to have the right things in order. How are we to live more holy lives? The imperative is rooted in the indicative. It will not do for me to say to you, just try harder, do better. In the same way, it will do nothing for my progress in knowledge of the truth and holiness in my living before God for you to say, Jeff, try harder. You haven't done very well. Do better. What we need to have is a grasp of this great reality, who and what we are as believers in Christ. Because then we know the reality of what God has done. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to us. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit to you this morning, believer. You know, sometimes people think of the ministry of the Holy Spirit as kind of some odd thing. Coming to that time of the year when everyone talks about spirits and you know, it's all a kind of spooky thing, and you don't want anything to do with that. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is not that. It's not some strange feeling or something where you start growing cold and going, what's happening to me? The ministry of the Holy Spirit here is, this is what He says. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. And I will put my law on their hearts and write it on their minds. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. Writing God's law there and giving us the ability, a heart of flesh, to do it. Even to the great glory of God. And so if we've grasped only a portion of that truth, as we all surely have, but if we have laid hold of our true identity in Christ, then we will no longer live as we have. We will grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and live lives that reflect that reality. May God so grant it to each one of us. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You for all that You have done for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You for who we are, new creatures. And we pray, O Lord, that that great reality might be manifested in us more and more, both in the declaration of our great justification and in that ongoing work of sanctification. Lord, we pray, grant that we might not seek to hold one of these at the expense of the other. Grant that we might hold both and believe in both, 
and might consider each to be properly precious to us as what you have done and are doing in us to your great glory. And grant, O Lord, that as we grasp but a fragment of this, Lord, increase our apprehension of all that you have done for us. And in the light of that, grant us to walk even as the separate, holy people of God, a kingdom of priests, to worship even before your great holy throne. Help us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.